Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're going to finish up the chapter today by looking at verses 17 through 42. You can find it on page 913 there in the Pew Bibles. And if you're here and you don't happen to have a Pew Bible or uh, have a Bible, uh, the the white and blue Bibles that are right there in the pews, those are our gift to you for being here with us today. We want you to have the word. Have you ever felt like we as Christians are fighting a losing battle? Not not that we question the truths of Scripture, not that we question that that God is real and that He's active and He's doing this work. We, We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead for the salvation of all who call upon Him. But when we look out over the world, when we look out over our nation or our community or maybe even within our own homes, we begin to wonder what God is up to. We struggle to see God in it, and it seems as though the enemy is winning. I mean, just consider the, the pervasive evil that we see in the world around us, wars, nuclear threats, slavery, sex trade, all sorts of violence and animosity, extremists who are killing innocents, many of them Christians. And, and you think to yourself, God, where, where are you? Are, are you not able? Do you not care? Are, are you even there? I mean, why do you not act for the glory of your name and for the good of your children? Not only is this inexplicable evil pervasive, but so is immorality. It's a constant battle not to be sucked in by the loves and the cares of this world, lusts and greed and pride and comfort and security and selfish ambition, gluttony, anger, sloth. And we think to ourselves, why does the fight have to be so hard? Why do I feel like I'm losing all the time? Why can't it be easier and more permanent for us just to deny ourselves and to live for Christ? Not only is there evil and immorality, but false doctrine is also pervasive. Many, even who profess to believe in Christ, distort God's word to suit their own desires or their faulty sense of reason And it leaves you to wonder who actually is a Christian and who is not and what is even necessary to have faith in Jesus. And then you add to that cults and false religions. You think about all of the unreached people groups who exist throughout the world. They're under delusions, strong delusions, false doctrines, false worldviews, unable to hear the word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, and you wonder why. Why haven't they heard? Or why would you allow people to claim to come in your name but not live according to your name? Why would you call us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, but then you allow people to go in and twist and distort and malign it and and mutilate it into licentiousness and and pervasiveness and, and just riddling your grace so that we don't even know anymore what this one faith is? 
And in our day, there's also pervasive decline in religion and pervasive intolerance toward religion. And so more and more people are claiming that they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And more and more people are standing in hostility, intolerant towards religion, or at least religious conservatives. So to try to remain faithful to Christ, we are often demonized by the media. Or the law of the land is making it more and more difficult for us to live within this world while remaining faithful to Jesus. And so we ask God, why are we losing the culture war? Why am I being considered a villain for my views on sex or marriage or life when all I'm earnestly seeking is for the good of this people? It's out of love that I say these things. And then you add to that pervasive indifference. And this is the one that gets me probably more than anything. Rampant nominalism within the church. People claim the name of Christ, but they don't live for the name of Christ. They're indifferent toward him. Or, or, or maybe you see it among those friends or those neighbors or those coworkers or those classmates who you pray for time and time again. You've shared the good news of Jesus Christ with them. They understand the gospel call. They know what it means, and they're completely indifferent. They, they don't care. And it leaves you to wonder, you know, is the gospel powerful to transform Can it not unite? Can it not earnestly save? Friends, I don't know about you, but I've asked all of these questions. I felt on many occasions that the enemy is winning and that I am fighting a losing battle. Felt that yesterday. But friends, so make no mistake about it. Despite what appears to be happening in this world and how we feel at any given moment, God sees, God is active, and his word will not be silenced. You see, God did not promise us long, comfortable lives filled with riches and achievements and delights and good health. He didn't say that the fight of faith would be fluffy or that through the absence of tribulation, we and others would enter into the kingdom of God. God did not promise that Christian values will triumph in our culture's marketplace of ideas or that godly living would come through the absence of persecution. He did not say that there would be no opposition, that all would find the aroma of Christ pleasing to them and it would lead them to life. He didn't promise that the word of God would only be sown among the good soil and not upon the path or among the rocks or among the thorns. He didn't promise that all who heard the word would believe and they would not waver and that there would be no false teachers or people who make themselves enemies of God or that the word of God would not demand your life. 
After all, it cost Christ his. But what it does promise us, what he does promise us, is that the word of God is sufficient to accomplish the work of God. The gospel will go forth to the ends of the earth and Christ will be with us always to the end of the age. And nothing, nothing will stop him. The word of God will accomplish all of its purposes. And what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42 is that though the opposition may be great, the word of God will not be silenced. And so let us listen as God speaks to us from this passage. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up and claimed to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing." After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Though the opposition may be great, the word of God will not be silenced. Now, I want to look at that statement in two parts. And so first, let's look at this opposition to the Word of God. Friends, opposition can come in in many forms. Most people, when they talk about their opposition to the gospel, they frame it in terms of intellectual opposition. Well, I've got hang-ups about the Word of God, and that's why I'm, I'm resisting this. But underneath it all, if you really look at the underbelly, there is emotional, religious legal, and physical resistance to the gospel. Though they claim to have intellectual hang-ups with God's word, underneath it all are ruling desires, beliefs, and plans that say, I hate this word, I reject this word, this goes against what I want to be true, and therefore I will pursue legal and physical means to silence it. That's what happens in our day, and that's what we see happening right here in this passage. There's emotional opposition, religious opposition, legal opposition, and physical opposition. In terms of emotional opposition, we see in verse 17 that these religious leaders and political leaders, the high priest and all who were with them, were filled with jealousy. I mean, here's the situation. You've got these know-nothing country bumpkins, as they considered them in chapter 4, verse 13. And they're coming here, and they're leading all of these people our people away from our religion and our influence to follow this Jesus, this man whom we had sentenced to death as a blasphemer. And yet many are following them. Jesus had these huge crowds follow after him, so much so that that they were even crying Hosanna as he entered into Jerusalem for that Passover festival. But when they arrested him, everybody scattered. And Jesus suffered and died alone. But now, you've got these followers, suddenly they're re-emerging from the shadows with claims that Jesus has risen from the grave. And it caused quite a confusion, so much so that that first 3,000 began to follow them at Pentecost in chapter 2. Then these Jesus followers healed this man who was born lame that always sat outside of the temple gates. And suddenly, like, people are going nuts. They're wondering what's happening. And despite the fact that the Sadducees arrested Peter and John, the people uh, followed them. And the church, it said, grew to at least 5,000 men in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, it received word that the people are holding them in high esteem because God happened to judge a couple of liars in their midst. 
And people, though they don't dare join in with them, they're still holding them in high esteem. And then more than ever before, believers are being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. People are now bringing their sick and those afflicted with demons throughout Jerusalem and even from the surrounding towns are now coming in to just be near these guys to be healed. And so this is going far beyond a personal threat. This is now a national threat, a national threat to our way of life. And they were jealous. Friends, when, when we think about opposition, we don't often think about jealousy. We sort of dismiss it when we come to this text. Like we look at it like, well, they were just jealous because now all of these people are following the apostles instead of following these religious leaders. And so they were just kind of like, fine, I'm, you know, I'm just going to pout about it and, and be jealous. And, and sure, that's happening. There's truth in that. But I think more is at work. You see, the gospel makes demands of our lives. It calls us to do something. The gospel calls us to turn away from our former manner of life, our former way of living, and to follow Christ. And that means giving things up. That means denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following Jesus. To live not for ourselves, but for him who for our sakes died and was raised. And we don't want that because we are jealous for the things that we have. I don't want to give up those things. I don't want to lose those things. You know, it'd be one thing if I could just add Jesus to my life. I'd keep all of that stuff, not have to change a thing and just add Jesus. That's one thing, but that's not what you're asking me. You're asking me to give up my life. You're asking me to give up my loved ones, to give up my people. You're asking me to, to give up my privilege, my position, my, my pleasure, my presuppositions, the things that I find pride in. I want those things. I'm jealous for those things. And so jealousy is part of the way that we oppose the work of God and the Word of God. But not only were they jealous for what they might lose, these religious leaders were also perplexed. Verse 24 now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words that the apostles are now missing, though they were securely tucked away in prison the night before, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Because when we're confronted by the word of God, it generates uncertainty. It shakes the very foundation of everything we hold dear, everything we believe to be true, the world as we know it. And, and that is a very confusing, very perplexing event. I mean, when you read through the Gospels, you read through about the ministry of Jesus, you see that it's riddled with confusion. Even among the disciples and John the Baptist, right? Jesus calms the storm, and the disciples are like, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? They're confused. John the Baptist is in prison. He's like, are you the one to come, or, or is there going to be another one? Did I, I, I kind of miss out on that. It's full of confusion, and, and that confusion carried over into, uh, throughout Jesus' ministry into his death, and it wasn't until his resurrection that they were able to be, then to begin to put it all together, who Jesus really is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. 
But even in the ministry of the apostles, as they're now moving forward, you've got mass confusion about what just happened at Pentecost. These people are now speaking in foreign tongues, tongues that they did not know, and they're proclaiming the work of God. And, and like, it's, it's blowing people's minds. And some people are mocking, saying, hey, they're drunk, right? You go on, chapter 3, this man who was born lame is now walking, though he's 40 years old, and they are, they're amazed, they're astonished, they're utterly astounded, but they really don't know what all of this means. Chapter 4, as Peter and John are, are before this council, the council is utterly astonished by their boldness. They can't imagine it. And now you've got people flocking to them in droves, and so they arrest them, and they're going to get them. I mean, they threw them in jail. They're going to be in jail. The, the guards are still there. The doors are still locked. They go, and the guys aren't even there. What on earth is going on here? It's perplexing. It's confusing. It's overwhelming. Now, they didn't know what to think. Now, now let me ask you this. What do you do when you're perplexed? What do you do when you're confused? When, when you're confronted by something new, when, when the Word of God comes to bear, causes, generates massive confusion with regards to your life, what do you tend to do? Do you just run with it? I'm going to run with that new thing. You know, that's coming in and confronting and challenging me. I'm just going to go with that. No, I'm, I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to take Him at His Word. I'm going to follow what He has to say, even though I'm completely confused about what that means. Or do you do this? Do you try to take control? Because that's what the religious leaders did. They sought to take control. Opposition arises when we are confronted by God's word and it perplexes us. And rather than trusting and following, we reject it and we try to take control. In verse 26, we see that in addition to being jealous and perplexed, that they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Fear can be a powerful motivator towards the opposition of God's word that confronts and threatens our way of life. I think that's pretty obvious that we don't need to belabor that point. We're afraid of what God asks of us, and so we oppose it. But in this case, and also back in chapter 4, it, it is quite ironic that it was their fear of man that actually kept them from over, being overtaken by their rage and killing the apostles. That wouldn't be the case next time for Stephen. Then in verses 27 and 28, we see their pride and self-justification. That when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Look, we're the authorities here. We're in charge. We have the right to make demands. We have the right to call you to things, to, to lay claims, to make judgments, not you. And here you have went ahead and you have disregarded all that. You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching and now you are trying to blame us. And I hope that you can see the subtle blame shifting that's taken place in here. Because they're basically saying, look, Jesus was wrong. You were wrong. We were not wrong. We have nothing to feel guilty about. Nothing to be blamed for. This is not our fault. How dare you accuse us? How dare you reject our authority? How dare you not follow us and you challenge our ideas, our beliefs, our way of life? 
And of course, the resulting emotion was anger. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. You know, my LTG, we've been going through a book called Killjoys. It's about the seven deadly sins. It's been a helpful little book. And this last chapter we read was on anger. And they define anger a little bit different than I've ever thought about it before. But I, I agree with what he's saying. He, he defines anger as love in motion to protect the object of our love. Love in motion to protect the object of our love. When you threaten what I love, my love goes active, and I'm trying to condemn you. I'm trying to annihilate you. You see, we're lovers by nature, and because we're lovers, we become what we love. We make our identity. We, we define ourselves around what we love most. Unfortunately, because of our sin and our rebellion against God, we are now broken lovers. We love the wrong things. But God's word, when it comes to bear upon our lives, it confronts our broken love and it calls us to true love in Christ. And since we interpret reality fundamentally as lovers, and because these threats to our love exist at every turn, there are reasons to be angry that emerge everywhere and all the time. Sinful anger happens when we misperceive reality as acceptable and when we're so blinded by our self-consumed loves that we want to annihilate anything that doesn't serve us. And so in anger, what we're doing is we're trying to play God. And that's what we're doing. That's, that's what we see going in, and, and that kind of leads right into the next form of opposition because in addition to emotional opposition, we see religious opposition. And religion, we have to understand, starts with what we love. You see, we were created as worshipers to love and to be loved by God. That's why we were made. But in our pride and in our rebellion, we rejected God to love other things more than him. And we have fashioned those things that we love into idols, Make them into gods of our lives. Things like our pride, our success, our family, our pleasure, our approval of others. I mean, you name it. And, and in order to maintain these loves and to support these loves and to justify these loves, so often what we do is we to develop or we adopt a worldview or a belief system to support those things that we love most. Our intellect, our reason, our yearning for comforts and pleasures. And, and we do this so naturally. We do it so intuitively that we don't really notice that it is our hearts that are leading us to adopt a belief system. We think it's our heads when it's really our hearts. Maybe, maybe we don't completely dismiss religion. Maybe instead what we do is we, we try to love God on our own terms, right? And so we distort, we twist God's word. We reject some things. We add other things in until we have a religion that's no longer Christianity. It's something that we have made in our image. And that's true for atheists and agnostics Every bit is as much as it's true for New Age spiritualists, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, Mormons, and so on. But God communicates himself through his word. And God communicates himself through his word 
in order to be known so that we might know him, we might love him, we might be loved by him. And so his word does not create gray areas. It doesn't create confusion. It's not to be understood as one more additional path in the whole system that allows us to seek God. It is the way to know God, to love God, to behold God, and to be holden by God. And so, God's word is a light that casts out darkness. And so when we're confronted with God's word, there is clearly a right and a wrong, a false doctrine and a right, a good, a sound doctrine, and we can know it and know it fully, know it truly. And it's here as well, the Jewish religious leaders and Christ's apostles cannot both be right. Either Jesus was a blasphemer that deserved to die, or he is the risen Lord in Christ whom you crucified, and repentance, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit are given only through his name. It's either or. It's one or the other. Either you follow him and you take him at his word or you are against him because he is the true religious authority and the only way of salvation. And so you're either for him or against him. If you, if you twist, if you distort, if you reject or you add to his word, you're against him. And these religious leaders understood that there, there were irreconcilable differences between what they believed and what these Christ followers believed. They, know, they knew you can't both be right and you can't both be wrong and be okay. And one of us is right and one of us is wrong. It's religious opposition. And so this led them to then pursue legal opposition. Now it just so happens that they were the governing power. This is the council. This is the senate of Israel. They had the legal authority to threaten, to imprison, to charge, not to teach or to preach in this name. And when the apostles refused, they had the authority to beat them. And they could have left them in prison until they rotted. They had the authority to do that. And prison there is not like prison here. Right? It's very unpleasant. And unless your friends or your family, they come and feed you, you starve to death. You die. And not to mention the fact that after all of the chaos surrounding the crucifixion of Christ, I am sure that Rome would have agreed in allowing them to put these apostles to death. Even though they didn't have that right before, now Herod and, and Pilate are buddy-buddy after this whole ordeal. And this whole thing was a mess. And here they are, they're enraged, they're ready to kill them, and they had the legal means to do so. Now friends, we should not be surprised when those who are emotionally and religiously opposed to the gospel seek to counter it through legal means. We should not be surprised. I know it's a shock given we live in the United States and our supposed First Amendment rights. And it is sad to see the effects of, say, same-sex 
marriage rulings and the implications that had on business owners or, or how some campus religious student organizations have been kicked off of campus property because they want to define their members and their leaders according to a religious point of view. And we should voice our opposition to these rulings. We should seek to uphold religious freedom through legal means. But let's keep in mind that in other countries, Christians are being beaten, they are being ostracized, they are being imprisoned and executed according to the law of the land. You can actually watch videos of it on YouTube. In the first three centuries of its formation, Christianity faced three empire-wide persecutions under Nero, under Decius, and under Diocletian. Right? These weren't mobs that were kind of running amok. This wasn't local governmental persecution. This is empire-wide persecution. Hunt them down, imprison them, burn their Bibles, get them to recant, or kill them. And that's not even counting the more of the localized governmental persecution, like say under the days of Marcus Aurelius, or the, the mob-driven hostilities like we see against Jason in Acts 17, or the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19. Because you see, if they can't silence the word of God through laws or court rulings, they will turn to physical opposition. When Peter said to them, we must obey God rather than men, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Now Gamaliel calmed them down for a moment, but it was just for a moment. They settled for beating them, more than likely scourging them with lashes 39 times each, just as they had done to Jesus. But the next time, it's not going to be enough. And Stephen would be dragged before that same council. But this time, they would cast him out of the city and they'd stone him to death. In Acts chapter 8, massive persecution erupts against Christians in Jerusalem and they scatter throughout Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth and they take the gospel with them. Chapter 12, Herod kills James with the sword, imprisons Peter. And as you keep reading story after story after story throughout the book of Acts, you have beatings and imprisonments and stonings and sufferings and legal hostility and ostracism and, and, and on it goes. But what it doesn't tell you is that every one of these apostles would suffer and die for their faith in Christ. They would face imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. And so it was for generations. So much so that Tertullian, the early church father, during the turn of the third century, in addressing the rulers of the Roman Empire, cried out, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us into the dust. But the more that you mow us down, the more we grow. And the seed is the blood of Christians. Friends, did Jesus not say, 
Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did he not also say, remember this, that a servant is not greater than his master? And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Did Paul not say to Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? But did he not also say in Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. For it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, all of these persecutions, all of these dangers, all of these tribulations, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And nothing shall separate us from his love. Not emotional, religious, legal, or physical opposition. Friends, we, we get so caught up, so consumed by the problems, by the things that we're afraid of that we read about in this passage that we miss the point. And that leads us to the second See, the focus of this passage is not on the greatness of the opposition. It's on the second half of the main idea that though the opposition may be great, the word of God will not be silenced. Some people will believe. Others will reject the gospel and kill its messengers. But God will have his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And friends, I want you to see how God is working mightily for the progress of his word in this passage. In verses 19 through 21, we see divine intervention. That The apostles were arrested, they're put into public prison, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now, some people want to dismiss this whole thing away and say, look, that, that can't possibly be an angel. Something must have happened here. You know, they had a sympathetic jailer. Maybe they stole the keys. Kind of, maybe the door didn't get completely locked on their way out. You know, and so this messenger is not an angel of the Lord. It's simply that. It's a messenger of the Lord. Well, I mean, I disagree with that point. Especially in light of the fact that in, in the book of Acts, angels are mentioned 20 times. So even if you dismiss this one, you've got 19 other problems to deal with. But even if you set that aside, just lay it aside for, for just a minute. I'm going to pick it back up, but I'm going to lay it aside for just a minute. Even if you lay it aside, 
it would still take an act of God to take these former cowards, all of whom had abandoned Jesus at his arrest, and to see them after their own arrest turn around and begin preaching and teaching God's word. That doesn't happen. That's a work of God. You don't, you don't get courageous from coward unless God does something. But another reason that he's speaking of angels, this whole section is filled with irony. Deep, deep irony. Right? For example, the council consider themselves to be authorities, but yet they're completely out of control. They consider themselves to be wise, to be, to be all-knowing, in effect, but they, they're completely perplexed, have no idea what's going on. They openly place the apostles in a public jail, and now they can't find them. And the only reason they do find them is because some guy comes up, uh, duh, uh, they're there preaching in the temple, the very place that these religious leaders should have been. All of the, the all-powerful political leaders, they now and they go to get them, but this time they're real scared, right? They're all timid. It's not, not by force. Come on, let's go. Because they're afraid of being stoned. And it's only because of the apostles' willingness that they came to now be standing before this council yet a second time. Do you think they had to go? God just released me from prison. Angel of the Lord opened up the door. You, you, you're going to tell me to go back? And the irony of ironies in this whole thing in, in verses 17 through 26 is the fact that the apostles are freed by an angel, something that the Sadducees didn't even believe in. <laughs> right? Hey, you know that thing that you don't believe in, the angels, right? That's who delivered us. Now, this was a work of God that freed the apostles from their imprisonment. He had miraculously delivered them, He had divinely intervened. But friends, he doesn't always do that. He didn't even do that the second time in this passage. He didn't spare them from the beating. He didn't spare Stephen or James from their martyrdom. Paul considered himself a prisoner for the Lord on behalf of you Gentiles, and not because he just spent one night in the joint for Jesus. But on this occasion, just like others that we see throughout the history of God's people, God divinely intervened. But friends, even though God doesn't always work this way in opening jail cells for his people, there is one way that God divinely intervenes every single time. Always at work, always active always achieving his purposes. He reminds us, just like he did here, of the call to preach Christ. Verse 20, go and stand and speak to the people all the words of this life. You see, even if he doesn't open prison doors, he reminds us of the call. Even if he doesn't spare the rod or the rock 
or the sword, he reminds us of the call. Even if he does not shut the mouths of those who are emotionally, religiously, legally, and physically in opposition to us, he reminds us of the call to go and stand and speak all the words of this life, and these words will give life. And that's the second way that we see God at work through this passage. He gives us a powerful message that can grant life to the hardest of hearts. And then even when we're facing emotional, religious, legal, and physical opposition, Peter still responds to this counsel in verse 29 with yet another sermon. He says to them, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom the Lord has given to those who obey him. Friends, we obey God rather than men when God's word is more powerful to us than men's. The word, this powerful word, is the word that fulfilled the promises that God made to our, their fathers. This powerful word is what raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This powerful word is what exalted Christ to the right hand of God to prove that he is the true leader and savior, not these religious leaders. And it is this powerful word that grants repentance and forgiveness of sin and the promised Holy Spirit to all who would call upon him. That is a powerful word. This powerful message enabled these apostles to preach in love to the very council that hung Jesus on that tree and was now persecuting them. This powerful message, it transforms hearts. It turns enemies of God into beloved children. Now, lest you say to yourself, well, Chet, that, that's not what happens here in this passage. I want you to keep this in mind. What made Gamaliel a staunch Pharisee? The primary opposition of Jesus during his earthly ministry softened so much so that he actually kept this counsel at bay. I would say it was this message, at least the first part of this message, that we must obey God rather than men. Because what does he say to them? Hey, we don't want to find ourselves opposing God here. But even more than that, if you just let your eyes shift down to chapter 6, verse 7. In chapter 6, verse 7, this council for the moment would reject Christ. It says, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests, many of whom were part of this council. Those who at this moment were enraged and ready to kill them. That is a powerful, life-giving message. And when we bear witness to this message, we do not do it alone. You see, verse 32 reminds us that the Holy Spirit also 
bears witness. And it is his witness that gives eternal life to those formerly hostile souls. That's not our job. Our job is to sow the seed. He is the one who gives the growth. And so we see God at work in divine intervention through this powerful message, but we also see that God works through the most unlikely of allies. Friends, it is important to note that that God does not only use Christians to fulfill his will. That God is sovereign over all things. That the king's heart is in his hand and he forms it like a stream of water wherever he wants it to go. And keep in mind that theoretically, the whole thing could have ended right here in verse 33. The whole thing. I mean, you think about Christianity, right? The church is brand new. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and every single one of the apostles were now in prison, being held by this religious council who had the authority to take their lives. The whole thing could have been done and over with at this moment. But that's not what happened. Instead, God uses an unlikely ally in verses 34 through 39. Here's Gamaliel, a a Pharisee, a strict teacher of the law. Again, the group that most opposed Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was a respected man in the council, and he was held in honor by all the people. So renowned was he that he would later succeed Hillel, as the head of the Hillel Rabbinic School, and they would rename it after him. He would be so highly esteemed that the Mishnah, the oral tradition of rabbinic Jews, would declare that since Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law. And purity and abstinence died out at the same time. What they're saying there is like no one compared to Gamaliel. No one even comes close. It's like these things have virtually died now that he's gone. And so Gamaliel remained a Pharisee until his death. All right, that's the way history treats him. He's not a believer. He's not a Christian. And yet, he was also the teacher of Saul, who would become Paul. And so, even there, you kind of begin to wonder how God was orchestrating this whole thing to kind of prepare Saul for that road to Damascus. But he stands up and he orders the apostles to be removed. And he says to the council, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these Men. Now notice that he doesn't ask them to search the scripture to examine the message that the apostles have been proclaiming. He's not saying, hey, let's see if this is true. Let's see if we need to, to follow these guys and we need to submit to this teaching. No, instead, he reminds them of two examples of uprising, Theudas and Judas the Galilean. Now, now during this time, there's this 50-year period, there were over 100 uprisings. A number of uprisings were led by men named Judas, a number of uprisings led by men named Joseph, a number of uprisings led by men named Simon, and a number of uprisings by men named Theudas. Because if you read liberal scholars, they're going to come in and they're going to say, look, 
Luke is being anachronistic here. He's reading former history back in, so clearly this is not the word of God. Because Josephus mentions a Theudas that, that took place well after this event. And I would just say, guess what? There's more than one. <laughs> there were hundreds of uprisings during this time. It was a very unsettled time for the history of the Jews. And, and Josephus doesn't give them all by name. He says that there's hundreds. He mentions a dozen. So, Gamaliel says, these guys all rose up and they came to nothing, right? Kill the leader and the followers scatter. And so Gamaliel says to the council in verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, here are two more points of irony, right? They had already killed the leader. They had already killed Christ. And yet his following had been growing by the thousands. So much so that the church conservatively was 8,000 strong at this point. This is far bigger than any of those other revolts that Gamaliel mentions. And though his message is right, that if this is from God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You may even find yourself opposing God. The reality is that they were already opposing God. But nevertheless, God used this unlikely ally. God placed this unlikely man in this strategic place at this strategic time to deliver the apostles through these strategic words. Just as Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is, in, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And we see throughout Scripture that God uses the most unlikely allies to fulfill his purposes. You read through history, it's the same sort of thing. You think about Emperor Constantine, right? The once persecutor of the Christian faith had a vision, just a random vision that his army went into battle with the sign of the cross on their shields. And because they had the sign of the cross on their shields, they won the victory. So he's like, I've got to do that. Otherwise, I'm going to get whooped. And so they do that. They win. And so suddenly, he's all pro-Christian, starts making all of these edicts that allow for the toleration of Christianity. Now, some argue whether or not he was a Christian, right? All I'm going to say right now is that Constantine was very mystical and very inconsistent. And though he understood what the moral requirements of the Christian faith was, he was not baptized until he was on his deathbed. So take it or leave it, whatever he was. Nevertheless, God used him greatly for the, his, through his tolerance towards Christianity for the expanse of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Don't think to yourself, even for a moment, that God is restrained to use only Christians to advance his will. God uses the most unlikely allies. Who knows how God will use that person in that department, filing that paperwork or making that decision or, or that court ruling or in that boardroom who may not even know Christ, but yet God uses them to offer a piece of counsel at just the right moment to allow for the advancement of the gospel and for the salvation of his people. Because God is not bound or limited by anything other than his holy will. 
And so God uses unlikely allies just like Gamaliel to accomplish his purposes. And so God's word will not be silenced. And he proves it through divine intervention, through powerful life-giving message, through the use of unlikely allies, and lastly, through courageous Christians. The gospel is a message that is meant to be delivered by messengers. The gospel is powerful regardless of the situation or circumstances that befall these messengers. And in fact, God calls us into it as sheep among wolves. Friends, that takes bravery. It takes boldness. And already in chapter 4, these apostles have been warned by this council not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus, to which they replied in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, whether it be right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so, after further threatening them, the council let them go at that time, but do you remember what the church did next? They had just been bold. They just put it to the council. What did they do? They prayed together as a body to the sovereign God of the universe for more boldness to speak all the words of this life. A prayer that we see God answering here in chapter 5 and throughout the book of Acts. Here, they were publicly arrested by the same people that had just killed their Lord Jesus. God frees them, and what do they do? They run and hide. They go right back into the temple and begin preaching. The captain and the officers, they go and they find them again after God had just released them, and they voluntarily return with them to this council. They submitted to their governing authorities after God had just miraculously delivered them from prison. Now me, you know what I'm going to be doing at that time? I'm going to say, nice try, buddy. You've already tried that. God released me. I'm staying right here. You try to come and take me. But instead, in humility, they go. The council is still breathing threats. It's obvious that they were enraged and ready to kill them, but still they preach boldly. They didn't shy away from the message, we must obey God. Though you killed Christ, God raised him from the dead. God exalted him to his right hand to prove that he is the leader, that he is the savior, not you. And it's only repentance and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit can come through him, not through anything that you can do. And so you must submit to, the, to him. And he preached this to the very people that had killed Jesus. You think that they didn't know that they were signing their death warrant when they spoke those words. In verse 40, they were called again before the council and beaten And again charged not to speak in the name of Jesus before they were released. And then what did they go and do? In verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they 
were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They rejoiced in their suffering, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day from that point on, and in every place, from the temple to house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Christ. Friends, let's, let's be honest with ourselves for just a moment here. This is not the way that we think. Let's admit that freely. This is not the way that I think. I want to think this way. I want to be this way. No, we think self-protection. But this is what God calls us to. And this is what God equips us to do. You see, you don't need God's word or the Holy Spirit to persuade human beings to protect themselves. To hide, to cower in fear but to bring into being a church of people who rejoice when they are treated unjustly, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for this name and to go back every single day and in every single place and to preach Christ, to live in, to truly live in, and for the sake of Christ, friends, that is a miracle. That is the work of God. You can't attribute that to anything else. You, you need the word of God and the spirit of God for that. You don't need the word of God and the spirit of God just to live like everybody else. And this is a miracle that we should give our whole lives to. Not, not to masochistically seek death for Christ or, or just to kind of grit our teeth and bear it, to survive the suffering but to truly live in it. To delight, to rejoice in the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. To delight in who we now are in Christ in such a way that we are willing to embrace and rejoice no matter what befalls us. Even if it's this. But to rejoice when we are found worthy to suffer for his name, nothing could be harder, nothing more amazing, nothing more beautiful, nothing that conveys the glory and worthiness of Christ more. It's just like Tertullian said, right? The more you mow us down, the more we grow. Because the seed is the blood of Christians. God did this. And he did this not with superhuman Christians, not with elitists, not with the wise of this age, but with people just like you and me. Just like you and me. The word of God and the spirit of God it worked so powerfully in their lives that they came to truly live in the light of this fact. That the love of God that we have received in Christ is worthy of our very lives. 
And so we rejoice to live in that love, regardless of what befalls us. That's what happens when the Word of God and the Spirit of God has its full effect in us. That we are filled with the Spirit to consider it all joy to proclaim the Word of God regardless of the cost. This is the path that our Lord Jesus has blazed for us. And He is now calling us to walk in it. But it is the Word of God that enlivened by the power of the Holy Spirit that makes us courageous like that. You see, the Word of God works powerfully in us that we go and we stand and we speak, no matter how great the opposition. The Word of God is sufficient to fulfill the work of God. And so, though the opposition may be great, we can rest assured in this, that the Word of God will not be silenced. Let's pray.